The Litro Lab Podcast. Ginger in the Sauce by Russell Helms. The slanted sound of an Australian accent catches Philip's attention as he ambles by the picnic table toward the slender house. He imagines everything in Australia leans just a bit to allow the bent words passage. The Aussie looks tall, even sitting down. Soft knots of jaw flex. He wears a close haircut. He casts about like darts his blazing blue eyes. He's no doubt a lifeguard, has been stung by the storied man of war, probably ridden Amtrak from Los Angeles to Boston, via New Orleans. Oh, thinks Philip. Earlier that day, while showering, Philip has an idea. The idea involves bottling breath, creating a massive library of breath, an archive of exhalations. He imagines the Internet will play an important role, that the breath of attractive people will fetch a smart price. Breath of the month or better, breath of the week clubs. A stoppered vial pulled from a wish list, mailed in a bubble wrap envelope. The possibilities jam his circuits and create a thin barrier between him and this party. A party featuring the random Australian with broiled clip sentences dropped like wobbling puppies. Philip's wife, Marlowe, slides into the party like bourbon over ice. She will find a fault here and there, but not until tomorrow, after a good night's rest. Philip, though, can't help wondering how many children will die from hunger during the party. How many phosphates have drained into sewers from the showers taken for this gathering. The quantity of blood lost each year to intestinal parasites. And this library of breath, that's what he will call it. Two others sit at the table with the Aussie. Guests fill an assortment of chairs lined into a jagged row along an open porch that runs the full length of the house. Coming down the hill with a bottle of chewy Zinfandel, Philip brightens to see Fran, who stands to give him a hug. The warm evening and light breeze seem ideal for a bonfire. Philip follows Marlowe through the sliding glass door into the dining room the Aussie's relentless accent pushing him along. He sees a white table with nearly empty platters and an old woman with stiff white hair. Jim, Fran's husband, who can play Frampton on his Les Paul, stands using a cane. The teenager with rosy cheeks and playful curly hair that dangles into his eyes is gluten intolerant. A single giant glistening beef rib on a white plate catches Philip's eye. Philip, have you met Gunther? asks Marlowe. She gestures toward Gunther, sunk into a small sofa between the dining room and kitchen. Yes, they met at the local watering hole a few months back, just after Marlowe and Philip moved into town. How are you? asks Philip. Gunther is much beefier than he remembers. Gunther is an associate provost at the college and his wife Laura, an art instructor. She seems beefier as well. We have met at the bar, says Gunter. Yes, yes, and your wife too, says Philip. Marlowe plows through the humanity, greeting everyone, introducing herself to strangers. Just a few days ago, she mentioned to Philip that they needed to get to know Gunter and Lura better. The two had met and married on Sakhalin Island. Gunter played the violin, had turned his talent to the fiddle. Lura worked her art into the community, would be speaking at a chamber of commerce meeting in a couple of weeks. We ride bikes, Lura had mentioned as icing on the cake. Philip retreats outside to a keg sitting in a plastic trash can of ice. 
The Aussie and his pair of devout listeners are fixed to the picnic table. The Aussie glances over and gives Philip a wary look. Philip turns and makes a social noise, perhaps a hello, at a young, clean-shaven man sitting near the keg. Fran's daughter Celeste and an older woman chat on the swing set as Celeste's three-year-old son gazes about with a precious look on his face. Philip pumps the keg a few times and tests the flow into his clear plastic cup. He pumps a few more times. He imagines someone watching. As deep red beer slides into Philip's cup, the Aussie answers questions from his pair of interrogators. The one called Craig is a little drunk as usual. The other apostle, a tall, plain woman with rugged skin and wild hair, Philip does not know. So what are the kangaroo's natural enemies, asks the wild-haired lady with a serious but tired look on her face. Well, the biggest, of course, would be man. The Aussie's voice rings of pirate. Philip wonders how long it will take the conversation to drift to great white sharks and aborigines. Back inside with his beer, Philip wafts to the table, where the conversation is turning to barbecue. He has noticed a new copy of the barbecue Bible on the kitchen counter. The last rib, which Jim insists he have, looks sweet and luscious, but seems to Philip only salty. He thinks maybe he tastes ginger. Ginger in the sauce, he asks. If there is ginger in it, Jim has forgotten. It is spicy, and that is Jim's major impression of the sauce. Fran comments on the huge blackened chicken breast. This sauce is sweeter, she says, classic St. Louis. Apple juice in there, she says brushing back her lively, graying hair. Philip imagines Fran dotes on him. She is a good decade beyond Philip, and he finds her attractive. And there is her husband Jim, using the cane, looking older than ever, flanked by his wrinkled mother, with lipstick the color of blood clots on her teeth. Philip eats the rib in relative silence, but the conversation turns to Marlowe and her new director's position at the college. Everyone finds it interesting that Philip does most of the housework and works only part-time. This is the sort of thing that Philip loathes to discuss, and he reaches for sarcasm disguised as humor. When she gets home, I hand her a glass. A glass of scotch, no ice, and the newspaper. She goes into the den and smokes a pack of Lucky Strikes, then watches boxing while I cook dinner. What are you wearing while you cook dinner, asked Jim. Well, hot pants and a tube top, of course, says Philip. His face is blank. Jim coughs and hacks. His mother either smiles or smirks. Her lips are dry and flaking. This gives Philip an opportunity to refill his beer, and he opens and closes the sliding glass door. The Aussie's sentences assault him. It seems as if his words drive along like broken tanks, rolling, jerking this way and that. More people have arrived who Philip does not know. A pretty young lady, a friend of Celeste, and she has mashed her finger in the car door just that very minute. Craig, wobbling now and with bright eyes, attends her wound with alacrity. As the beer dribbles and foams into his cup, a bell rings in Philip's head. The wild-haired woman is asking the Aussie about the problem of rich Australians adopting aboriginal children. Oh, you mean the lost generation? The Aussie replies. His reply carries the authority of a scholar. Philip wanders to the porch swing, which looks over the sloping yard, a small garden, and pasture rolling beyond to an old wooden fence. The swing, suspended with springs, bounces and surprises him when he sits. 
Gunter passes through the glass door and stands beside him. It's a nice swing, says Gunter. Bouncy, says Philip. Gunter sits in a folding chair next to him. He smiles. He has a very wide face, thinks Philip. He imagines Gunter and Lura as tourists in Shanghai. He lived in Germany, Marlowe has told me, says Gunter. Philip's father, retired from the army, did several tours in Germany. Just Germany. Yes, Stuttgart once. Augsburg another time, Philip replies. He speaks some German. I can count to ten. Philip feels badly. Gunter nods, but is okay with the answer. Happy at least that Philip has traveled abroad, which seems to be an issue with Gunter. Philip senses this and mentions that he lived for two years in Ghana, and not with the Peace Corps, as everyone assumes, but on his own, and for no particular reason other than he needed to see something new. But why did you go there, Gunter asks, sitting up straight. I just wanted to. And then I fell in with a group of businessmen who sold coal to the United States. The Americans were cheating them. A very old German shepherd drags its body behind him, whining in pain. He slobbers and his waxy eyes seem to be taking in his last moments. Fran walks over and, as if to reassure Philip, says that Hasty is very, very old, that he has very bad hips, that perhaps it's his last summer. Philip stands from the swing and squats to scratch Hasty beneath the chin. The dog's teeth are flat and yellow and brown. He reaches for Hasty's ears, but the dog pulls away in pain. An old dog, says Gunter. Yes, says Philip. With more beer in hand and back inside the cool house, desserts appear on the table, and Philip feels he is the first to notice. The strawberry tort with a honey sauce, a Lura creation, is very good, and Philip eats two pieces, knowing that one is plenty. The discussion inside turns to coal mining, specifically mountaintop removal, which does not seem like mining at all to Philip. The discussion drifts toward the plight of the people who live near the mining sites, the hourly detonations, the fouling of wells and streams, the driving of wild animals into byways and onto highways. The sentiments ring true, thinks Philip, but sound hollow. No one seems ready to lie down in front of a bulldozer. He wonders about the old man without teeth at Walmart buying cases of water. He had thick white patches of fungus on his elbows. Philip turns back to the table and the Aussie lingers there, stooped, eyeing the brownies. For a brief second, it appears as if Philip is obligated to say something, introduce himself, perhaps. He imagines he hears thunder, and then, as if by magic, Marlowe is at the table between Philip and the Aussie. She instantly engages him in some roundabout humor and friends for life, thinks Philip. But she moves away too quickly, and now he is most definitely due to engage him. Visiting? asks Philip. For a few days. The Aussie bends the A in days like a metal folding chair around a telephone pole. Something, something in the accent that causes Philip's mind to flutter. To lose balance. Me mum's a friend of Fran. Friends of the family, you know. The Aussie squints his eyes, seems angry. Oh, says Philip. Lived in Indiana for three years. The Aussie seems determined to reassure Philip that he belongs at this party, that it's not a mistake he is standing there at the table, eating brownies. Something happens or doesn't happen, and Philip gives the Aussie raised eyebrows and a half-smile. 
which occurs in such situations whether he wants it to or not, and turns away knowing that a great crossroads has been passed. The woman, who is growing passionate about mountaintop removal, earlier made an offhand remark about glitter being the white trash of craft supplies. While she talks and gestures with her hands, Philip thinks about glitter as the white trash of craft supplies. He opens the sliding glass door again, closes it. Even though it's still light, Craig wavers next to a haphazard pile of wood and debris. He swings a small red plastic container of gas. Fran stands beside Philip, and she looks so small. The adage that boys will be boys predictably passes between them, and a light conversation ensues, perhaps about Philip and Marlowe's new house, or how the Unitarians aren't really like a church. The fire licks up the taller pieces of plywood. A low, percussive whoosh thrums the still, warm air, throwing the flame high for a few seconds. Finishing his last cup of beer, as Marlowe joins him outside, they determine to leave, the next day being Monday and full schedules for them both. Down the hill toward an old barn go Celeste and the clean-shaven man, along with the wild-haired lady and the young woman with the mashed thumb. They laugh and prance, not unlike ponies. The Aussie is nowhere in sight as cheerful goodbyes and promises of more of the same follow. In the van, Marlowe mentions that the fellow with the Australian accent, which she loves, has come to see Celeste. The other guy is her new boyfriend, says Marlowe. Really, says Philip. And he launches into great detail about his new idea, the Library of Breath. Subscribe to Literal Lab Podcast on Spotify.